Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. guest today on The Art of Range is Fiona Flinton. Fiona is a senior research scientist with the International Livestock Research Institute. I was introduced to her through Barbara Hutchinson at the University of Arizona and Barb's efforts to support the proposal to the United Nations for an international year of rangelands and pastoralists. Uh, Fiona is now in Rome, but has spent much of her career, I think, in Africa. Uh, Fiona, welcome and thanks for talking with me today. Great. Yeah. Hi. Hi, everyone. Good to speak to you. Well, I suspect that many listeners, and I'm including myself here, likely don't know much about the International Livestock Research Institute. Uh, what is it, and what do you do with the ILRI? So the um, ILRI, the International Livestock Research Institute, is one of the CGIR uh, global research organizations. Um we specifically focus on livestock um, as uh, our sister organization our sister organizations within the CGIR uh, focus on um, other aspects of agriculture or food systems. So um, in Ilri, uh, the livestock that the livestock aspects that we focus on uh, range from uh, breeding and genetics through to social systems, um, social systems uh, related to livestock. Um, so um, for me um, and the program that I work on, the Sustainable Livestock Systems, it very much focuses on um, livelihood systems that depend on uh, livestock, uh, but are highly connected to the land and the environment and obviously to people. So it's looking at that interconnection and that system of people, land, livestock, um, and promoting it and supporting research related um, to it um, to make it more sustainable going forward. So um, I specifically focus more on the, on the dry land areas, on rangelands and, and on pastoral systems. You mentioned the CGIAR. I believe that's the right acronym. What uh -huh. is CGIAR? Uh, it's it's used to be an acronym, but but now it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a name. <laughs> yes. It's its own word. I see. It's its own word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, it's basically the the group of the international research institutes. Hmm, I see. You know, I I consider this to be a pretty broad field, but when I visit with people outside the world of rangeland ecology and livestock production, I realize it is, is a bit of a niche. Uh, what was your pathway to becoming a range scientist? It was, it was quite an interesting pathway. Um, I, I actually came out of school and trained as a chef. So um, yeah, I've gone from cooking to, uh, to research, to being a scientist. So um, it was an interesting journey. Um, I think, I think really uh, the, the initial interest uh, came from um, my connection uh, to agriculture. Um, from the age of 10, I grew up on a farm uh, in, in Sussex in England. So through that, I think I, I uh, developed uh, a relationship with, with livestock, probably, and, and an appreciation of livestock and, and farming systems. Um, then, as I, as I said, when I came out of school, I, I trained as a chef. I worked in a hotel and then one day basically woke up and thought, Nope, there's more to life than this. I'm I'm not stupid, and I can go to university. Um, and I actually uh, got the extra qualifications to enable me to go to university. So when I was about twenty, twenty eight, twenty nine, um, I actually started my first degree um, at an agricultural college, doing rural environmental studies. And as as part of that, 
uh, began looking at issues in developing countries. Um, following that, I did a, a master's at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. And really, it was there where I really started getting more interested in, in uh, drylands and pastoralism. So I did uh, Savannah Ecology as one of my units. I, um, I did sustainable uh, agricultural systems. Um, and it was really then, also with the interest of, of traveling, <clears throat> that basically took me to Africa. So I, I uh, got an opportunity to work with the World Wildlife Fund um, in Ethiopia. And that really, uh, going to Ethiopia and spending some time there, look, learning about the environment, the, the, the country itself, the, the challenges, the opportunities there, um, and, and slowly getting to understand more about pastoralism and rangelands in particular, um, Yes, it took me. It took me to a situation where I was I was able to work in this, and uh, yeah, I've been on and off uh, working in Ethiopia for about eighteen years. Um, from my base in Ethiopia at at the Ilri campus, I I also um, have worked in other countries, particularly in East Africa. Um, but more recently, I've been doing more global advocacy work on rangelands. So, so yeah, it was it was an interesting journey, but uh, I'm very happy where I am, and I I wouldn't change anything. And for sure, Africa is is under my skin, uh, even though I'm sitting here in Rome. Um, Ethiopia is, is is certainly a very um, important part of my life still, and I uh, I will continue to work. In, in that region and and in other parts um, parts of the world where pastoralism and rangelands are predominant. So does Ilri have a office in Rome? Is that what brought you there? Um, no, it doesn't actually. Um, its its headquarters are in Nairobi um, and uh, a similar sized campus in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And then uh, there are a few smaller offices in other parts of the world, um, but no, not in not in Europe. Um, the reason I I actually came to to Rome uh, was. Um, we we developed a, a collaboration with IFAD, uh, the UN agency, International Fund for Agricultural Development, um, and we came to an agreement that I would contribute uh, some of my time to building collaboration between IFAD and two of the the flagship the flagship projects of the CGIR. One is the livestock. Uh, project, the Livestock CRP, and the other one um, is the Policy Institutions and Market, Market CRP, which is led by another sister organization, another sister CGIR center called IFRI, um, the International Food Policy Research Institute, based actually based in Washington. Um, so, yeah, we came to an agreement um, with IFAD that some of my time uh, would be given to building collaboration and working with them on supporting pastoral, pastoral issues and land governance, natural resource management governance issues. So I've been here for almost two years uh, working with IFAD on this. Yeah, I have to say that I have the highest regard for good chefs and enjoy <laughs> cooking myself, but but I do feel like doing range work is meaningful. Uh, you've done a lot of work toward helping avoid conflict in pastoralist cultures. Uh, and uh, I've read some that, you know, some of what uh, the United States has done to promote certain ideas in other parts of the world has maybe contributed to some of those conflicts. And related to that, you've been promoting participatory rangeline management as a means of avoiding conflict and conserving natural resources that pastoralist peoples depend on. Uh, we could probably talk all day about this, and we might need to cover some of the topics in more than one interview. But, you know, for me as a, as a child of Western civilization, um, it, it seems to me that the social structures that govern land use or land access are a central feature in social conflict. You know, for example, I see benefits to exclusive rights to a piece of land 
as a means of avoiding conflict. And that's certainly obvious in things like, you know, cropland. Uh, but I'm aware that in other parts of the world, especially those with extensive semi-arid rangelands, uh, exclusive individual land ownership really wouldn't even be feasible or might not even make any sense and is definitely not as common as it is in the United States. And there are likely social structures, you know, customs and rules that that deal with this. Is that right? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, so, I mean, particularly particularly in areas where you have uh, a more variable environment, um, more variable and unpredictable rainfall, um, but also temperature, um, the this results in um, the the variable distribution of vegetation and other resources, and, and really quite significant variability across uh, a large area, across a, a large landscape. Um, so, to to use these these areas, and particularly areas that receive low rainfall so it's it's not just the variability but it's also the low rainfall and high temperatures as well uh, so predominantly dry land areas or semi semi dry land semi arid areas to use these areas um, and and to make something productive out of these these very variable variably spatially distributed and temporally distributed resources um, which can often be of you know a low productivity um, what is needed is access to a very large area so um, you need access to the the vegetation that's there during and, and the water that's there during the wet season as well as the the vegetation and water that is uh, more permanent and um, and can be accessed in the dry season when the wet season grazing or water isn't available. So, so this means uh, that the, the, the livestock production system, uh, which is normally pastoralism, um, needs access to a large area, to a large landscape. Um, and it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work if that area is divided up between individuals because one individual might have the the only permanent water um, in that whole landscape. Um, Another individual might have the only dry season grazing area in that landscape. Um, So the rest of the landscape is is left useless because without those permanent access to those permanent points, the use of the rest of the landscape is impossible. Um, so ultimately, the the only way of using these these variable landscapes, um, these dry land landscapes in particular, um, is through collective use, um, and that that means a, a large group of people um, can can be supported, a large amount of livestock can be supported, um, but it needs to be managed and governed in a a collective way. Um, And so individual individual doesn't work. Uh, We've seen some of these collective systems uh, being divided up uh, into individual plots uh, for various reasons, um, and it doesn't work. It doesn't support the livestock production system um, in the same way that it would do collectively. And what we have seen is where, like, for example, individual ranches have been uh, established in what was uh, a collective communal or common property system. What we've seen is is uh, now uh, trying to join up those individual ranches and trying to reintroduce the movement and the sharing of resources across them. Um, so, so yes, it's uh, uh, going back to your question. Um, absolutely, um, particularly in these in these dryland areas with this variable um, temporally and spatially distributed resources, um, individual land ownership doesn't work. 
and and it needs to be a, a collective collective land ownership or a collective land access property system. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like we see a little bit of movement that way, even in the States with interests in things like grazing associations or other arrangements where people can, uh, you know, collectively manage a large number of animals on a really large landscape uh, in a way that makes more sense than parceling it out into, into smaller units. Uh, I, I think one of the to me, one of the obvious questions for those of us that are not familiar with these kinds of collective use systems is, uh, you know, what what may not even be an accurate description of a real problem. But but I think most people are going to think, well, how does this not cause a tragedy of the commons? There was a British economist in the late 1800s named uh, William Forster Lloyd, who wrote about overgrazing that occurred in Ireland and Great Britain on grazing areas that experienced unregulated use by multiple herders. Uh, and more people would be familiar with the article written by Garrett Hardin in the 1960s on the topic. And I think it's from him that we got the figure of speech, Tragedy of the Commons, which interestingly comes to refer to all kinds of things besides grazing at this point. You know, but the tragedy of the commons describes a social situation where individuals act according to their self-interest instead of the good of the whole, and this can cause natural resource collapse, which then, of course, harms the individual who would be is acting selfishly, even if that natural resource crash is delayed in time. Um, I think some of the systems of land tenure in the Western U.S. came from. Uh, somewhat of a tragedy of the commons situation with um, un, unregulated land use in the West, uh, where you had lots of people, you know, whoever got there first got the grass, and whoever came after that had nothing left over. Uh, what what kinds of so? Question number one is: uh, Is that has that ever been a problem in cultures that have collective use systems? And if not, what kinds of social structures are in place uh, among pastoralist cultures that prevent the tragedy of the commons? Sure. Yeah. Interesting question. Um, I mean, it's 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 a risk for sure, um, but a but the fact that these collective systems still exist um, is uh, an outcome. It, I, I mean, the fact that these collective systems exist is kind of answers that question in that um, they they haven't reached a point of uh, of collapse. Um, if if they had reached a point of collapse, then those collective systems wouldn't exist still. Um, I mean, in right. in in pastoral areas. Um, in some areas, there are controls. Um, land is held com- in, uh, as common property, um, but it's not open access. And there are rules and regulations governing access. Um, if, even if, I, I mean, most of these pastoral areas are not uh, are not owned as such. Um, a lot of these areas are kind of under state jurisdiction. Um, so in, in, mo- in the majority of them, the, there is no like certification um, or even registration of these areas to a particular group, um, which obviously becomes a problem um, when there's increasing pressure of uh, on the land use of those areas. Um, but even despite these, um, despite this fact that there might not actually be firm ownership or a land holding of these areas, um, there often tends to be these rules and regulations governing the access, um, governing who's included as a group, um, and even governing who's not ex- who's not included, ex- excluding. Um, and and so these areas, I mean, we can we can call them common property and under common property regimes. But there are there are some places that 
and particularly in larger geographical areas where there is a lack of centrally controlled rules and regulations and and the pastoralists rather than being influenced by rules and regulations they basically decide where and when they want to graze um and this the, the influences on this, I mean, it's not only about the physical availability of, of grazing or water, um, but this can be influenced by more informal institutions, uh, by social networks, uh, by reciprocal arrangements between individuals or groups. Um, and this makes a very uh, complicated, uh, but also flexible and, and adaptive um, system, uh, but it is very complicated and it's it's very difficult sometimes to pin it down. Um, and some people will call these particular more complex adaptive systems as as open property regimes. But but basically, there's there's something. There, there might be clear rules and regulations, or there might be more fuzzy, open, porous, uh, informal norms uh, that are that are known um, to to influence and to control to control to a degree access so so this basically uh, prevents the 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 point of reaching a tragedy of the commons um, people will uh, people follow the rules and regulations and believe in the strength of and the need for the collective. Um, as I said, these areas have to be managed and accessed collectively. Um, so it needs to be that collective and reciprocal uh, arrangements are just so so important. So people people make them work. Pastorists make them work. Mm -hmm. And I do realize that there are some natural checks on that kind of excessive uh -huh. use. Uh -huh. I mean, if people are running animals uh, together in common during a period of year when grass is green, when the grass is gone, you have to move on. Or or you reach a point where there's little enough forage that uh, livestock are declining in body condition and there's reasons to, to move. Uh, Maybe to back up just a minute, what? How would you define pastoralism? How is that something more than collective land use? Um. Well, um, I mean, it's the the aim of pastoralism is to to have a, a functioning, uh, extensive livestock production system. Um, so. Pastoralists don't want their their livestock to die. Um, they want to have a system uh, that uh, keeps their livestock healthy. Um, the The sale of livestock might not be the the ultimate goal, but uh, so mm. the yeah the sale of livestock might not be the ultimate goal um but having a healthy herd of livestock um and large numbers of livestock um which often seen as reflecting wealth um that is a goal um so pastoralists like i mean pastoralism involves managing the land in a way to to optimize that um pastoralists uh know uh, they they have a system of use. Um, they have their dry and wet season grazing areas. The only the, the reasons that they move between wet and dry season is not only about the availability of water. It's not only about the availability of grazing, but it's also um, about ensuring that checks and balances are in place um, to ensure that. The areas that have the permanent water and have the permanent grazing um, are not used at times when other grazing and water is available so that they are rested and available uh, in times of need. Um, pastoralists also move their livestock in a way to, um, to prevent or to break parasite cycles. Um, they will move their livestock to, um, to make the 
the best use of nutrients at a certain time of the year, um, uh, different growth patterns in, in vegetation or herbs or accessing salt licks, um, uh, yeah, uh, for to, to keep the livestock healthy. Um, so there's a system there. Pastoralism is a, is a system of people land and the livestock um, and pastoralists uh, kind of make that system work to to optimize livestock production from those very difficult harsh dry variable environments um, I mean pastoralism it, it's also an identity pastoralists have an identity um, as as pastoralists it's it's often connected to, to culture, um, uh, to different ethnic groups. Um, and so there's, you know, all pastoralists are not the same. Um, pastoralists across the world um, have different, um, different cultures, um, but there are certainly some um, key characteristics of those and key characteristics of the pastoral system uh, that are the same. Uh, things like the need for mobility, um, that integrated uh, system of land, people and livestock. Um, so there's some commonalities across those as well. Um, so did I describe that okay? <laughs> Yes, that was the best definition of pastoralism I've heard yet. Okay, excellent. Um, okay, good. What are what are some uh, specific people groups and places that you've worked with that represent pastoralism? Um, okay, so um, though having been uh, spent most of my time in Ethiopia, um, the the actually the most of the on the ground work that I've I've done uh, with pastoralists themselves is has actually been in Tanzania, um, and that's been mainly with uh, the Maasai, um, and in uh, yeah mainly in in central Tanzania, um, and that's that's been working. Um, uh, pretty much most of the last uh, 10 years on and off on a project um, that was supporting um, land use planning, uh, uh, land use planning of, uh, of land in villages, um, but in a way that would be more beneficial for the sharing of resources um, that pastoralists use. Um, so this this was supporting a joint village land use planning across uh, village boundaries, um, so that shared resources could be accessed between different pastoral groups. Um, so yeah, yeah. You mentioned what in one of the reports uh, that there are different types of conflicts that that are still common, and that sometimes those are related to plenty rather than scarcity. That was something that I had not thought about before, although it seems obvious once you think about it. Can you say more about that and what kind of conflicts are, are common related to resource availability or lack of availability? Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we, we do tend to, to kind of frame conflict um, from a viewpoint of scarcity. So uh, the idea that people start fighting when, when water runs out um, but to turn that on its head, um, putting in a water point uh, in a place without proper, properly planning or understanding the implications of that water point and of the, the increased access to that water point can actually cause conflict. So, if a water, if water is is put into a place um, where there were kind of underlying conflicts um, or latent conflicts, uh, it could actually cause conflict itself. So it's not in that situation. It's not the scarcity of water, but it's actually the the, the surface, the extra water coming in. Um, I mean, another example is is something like uh, uh, um, extractive industries um, or 
uh, mm-hmm. things like oil or gems, you know, the conflicts around these, that it's not conflict here is not so much about the scarcity of those, but it's about the surfeit of those. It's, it's about the fact that these resources are here and, and people are, are uh, fighting for them. Yeah, that's interesting. Nathan Sarah mentioned in his book, uh, The Politics of Scale, The History of Rangeland Science, that that people that uh, rely on, live in, you know, are defined by these many parts of the world, pastoralist peoples are often marginalized inside of the, the country that they live in. Uh, to what extent is that the case say in uh, Tanzania or Ethiopia, how are, how are pastoralist peoples seen or treated by the other people that live in the country? In the majority of, of places, um, there is still a lack of understanding of, of pastoralists. Um, and I think generally of people who move uh, who want to move or who need to move for their livelihoods. Um, I mean, whether we're talking about uh, gypsies in the UK, where I come from, or whether we're talking about um, pastoralists in Africa, uh, there's still this lack of lack of understanding and appreciation of uh, the, the need to move. Um, the... The idea of progress is is having your your individual plot, your individual house, uh, your your mortgage, your bank loads, your access to TV, etc. Um, and anyone that's that's outside that vision, outside the norm, um, is considered as unprogressive um, mm-hmm. or. Uh, dirty or uh, not contributing to the economy in in the way that is expected. So there is for sure uh, still um, this perception of of pastoralists in some places. Um, I think in the last 10 years or 20 years uh, since I've been working on these issues, I, I think thinking has shifted. Um, it's, it's shifted uh, partly from an ecological standpoint in that the, the ecology of dry lands and the appreciation of uh, a land use system such a as pastoralism that can make something productive out of these very harsh, difficult environments. Um, I think there's there has been uh, an, a, a growing appreciation of the contribution of, of pastoralists to uh, local and national economies in terms of, of livestock production. Um, and yeah, I mean, for sure, for sure in Ethiopia, um, that appreciation has changed uh, very much over the last the last one or two decades, and and now where I, I mean in the past I mean twenty years ago it was very difficult to to um, to talk to government about pastoralism or to see it being appreciated um, to perhaps ten years ago where. Um, there was still a push for sedentarization and the settling of pastoralists um, with uh, movement kind of on the periphery of that at, at certain times of the year or when there's a drought to a situation now where pastoralism really is embraced much more centrally within policy um, and within strategies, within development strategies and pastoralism is being much more strongly appreciated as contributing to the to the national as well as the local environments. So, yes, in some places there is still an appreciation at, at, or a lack of appreciation of pastoralism, um, but I think it it definitely has improved over over the last two decades, and and we're seeing that now with with greater investment in these areas and an investment that. Um, supports a pastoral system rather than um, challenges it or, or blocks it. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You know, one of my <clears throat> I had a friend who worked for a while in India with International Justice Mission, and she said that one of one of the problems with poverty that we in Western countries like the United States or England uh, don't typically see is that uh, you know somebody in a place like that that is wronged has almost no access to a justice system that they're you know not well treated and and nearly completely separated from some of these institutions that are designed uh, to protect people so i'm i was curious too whether in in countries where most of the population are not pastoralists um, but you have a government that is setting rules and laws that uh, that affect that govern how land is held and used uh, you know to what extent is that does that uh, jeopardize the ability of pastoralists to continue doing what they're doing sure yeah um yeah i mean we see this we've we've seen this in tanzania so with the sustainable rangeland management project that i mentioned um so the the strong focus on this was was as i said was uh, trying to secure these shared grazing lands for for livestock keepers for pastoralists Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I mean, this came as a result of of the recognition by by the major donor IFAD um, and uh, a network called the International Land Coalition, uh, a recognition that um, when this uh, village land use planning process happens, um, that pastoralists um, in particular uh, often not included in these processes um, so pastoralists may be uh, using part of that village land for grazing um, but when a village land use planning process um, is undertaken uh, they either they either don't know about that process or or are not present. They might be somewhere else grazing their cattle when the meetings are taking place, um, or they're purposefully excluded. Um, so this this project, the Sustainable Rangeland Management Project, really tried to um, first of all improve the appreciation of pastoralists as land users. In, in the villages in Tanzania where we worked, um, both both locally but also nationally, supporting the Ministry of Livestock, um, the Ministry of Livestock and Fisheries to um, uh, get involved in these processes um, that are often um, much more implemented by land officers um, at the district level who might not have a good understanding of or appreciation of livestock and pastoralism. Um, so working at, at that national level, but also at the local level to, to try and uh, uh, support a process and, and build the capacity of, of local government to, to support this process of, of a much more inclusive land use planning process. Um, so, so in these areas, um, there had been a lot of conflicts between uh, the livestock keepers and the and agriculturalists. Um, there was a lot of conflict over the over access to land, um, and through through this village land use planning process, um, it's it it brings or it should bring all the different uh, land users together, um, and then. Through uh, through understanding the land use, uh, understanding the pet potential of the land use, understanding the needs of those different land users, um, going through a negotiation process um, of what is it that people really need to um, to ensure that their livelihood systems uh, will exist um, or or can function today, but also in the future. Um, and basically negotiate um, to a point where agreement is reached about the the land use um, in that village. Um, 
the problem is when when you only work with one village um, and you have pastoralist groups that share would normally share resources across village boundaries um, that that process of just working with one village um, and keeping things within an administrative boundary uh, might actually then block the sharing of resources, uh, the sharing of grazing lands or water across the administrative boundaries. So what this project did, uh, it looked at how resources are shared across three or four villages, and then it worked with those three or four villages together to ensure that that grazing that grazing sharing and the sharing of water was maintained through a joint agreement between that cluster of village across that cluster of villages. So, so that not only so it not only defined the land uses uh, through coming to agreement and resolved those conflicts, but it actually strengthened the sharing of resources across the boundaries um, and strengthened the collective group. Um, that shares those resources. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, you can you can go from a point of conflict um, to a point of working through negotiation to a point of agreement um, over land use, um, but it needs to. It's it's a very can be a very protracted, long process. It can be highly politicised at times. Um, it can demand a lot of resources. Um, but today, those clusters of villages where we worked, they they feel very secure. They have a land holding certificate now um, for those shared grazing lands, and it's it's now a much better environment um, from which they can now invest in the land and and improve the productivity of the land. It sounds like you're describing what you have termed participatory rangeland management over the last several minutes. Uh, is can you define that? And I, maybe to to frame that. I would say that, as I'm sure you're aware, in the United States, we often refer to cooperative resource management or collaborative natural resource planning, uh, which usually means you know, multiple stakeholders discussing how best to proceed for the good of the whole with range management. Uh, how is that different from or the same as uh, what you're calling participatory rangeland management in an entirely different culture? Right. Um, uh, what what I've described so far um, is is actually uh, a village land. It's, it's a land use planning process. So within the, in that process, yes, we we were particularly interested in showing that the grazing lands were protected uh, within that process. But the village land use plans also included forests, urban areas, mm. agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, uh, the that land use planning process is is the multi stakeholder negotiation agreement process, um, and that land use pl- planning process has to happen first and get those grazing lands protected before coming in with the rangeland management. So this this is absolutely what's now happening in Tanzania. Um, those shared grazing lands have been protected, uh, been certified. Uh, They're part of the village land use plan or joint village land use plans. Um, And now we kind of shift from the the remit and authority of the National Land Use Planning Commission, who are responsible for the land use planning process. It kind of shifts now to saying, okay, the grazing lands are protected, this is where the Ministry of Livestock and Fisheries comes in and really tries to improve the management of those grazing lands, of, of the rangelands. And for me, this is where participatory rangeland management comes in. So participatory rangeland management is, is basically a, a step-by-step process of uh, building, of, of understanding the, the rangeland, the grazing lands, understanding their their current status, their potential, um, looking at options to improve 
the grazing lands. It's about strengthening the management institution, the governance institution, uh, the group of people who are going to be responsible for that management. Uh, It's about producing a a rangeland management plan um, and then implementing that plan. Um, So that process, I'm sure, doesn't sound so different from from what is is done in other places. Um, But I think... The, the idea with participatory rangeland management and, and calling calling it this um, has just formalised those steps. It's not it's not particularly anything groundbreakingly new, but it's um, it's kind of formalised a process um, that was partly there or steps of it were there, um, but it's it's just helped to structure it and to provide a structure. Um, to the process of of understanding, uh, planning, and implementing um, to improve the rangeland management of of a specific area. Um, It's very, I mean, it's drawn completely from participatory forest management. You know, the principles are the same, but adapted um, to to a rangeland context. Uh, You mentioned in the report as one of the, in the list of, practices that are important for creating resilience, both social resilience and ecological resilience, uh, of flexibility and optionality. Uh, what do you mean by that? Most of the environments where where pastoralism um, exists and, and also has a comparative advantage over, over other land uses um, uh, are these dry land environments. Um, so um dryland environments um that that have a have a low rainfall and have high temperatures um but also as as i mentioned before this this variability of rainfall uh to a degree that variability of rainfall can be predicted um i mean there's there's a rough understanding of or, or predictability about when wet and dry seasons happen. Um, but very often and, and increasingly um, with climate change that's happening, um, there can be times when there's a, a, a shock to that system, when there is when the, the rain doesn't come when it's supposed to rain or the rain doesn't come at all or it's, it's an, a much more reduced... Um, reduced amount. Um, so unless a system, unless pastoralism has the ability to adapt to that shock or to react to that shock, um, it will collapse. Um, so there needs to be a degree of flexibility written into the pastoral system to be able to react and adapt to, let's say, the a drought, um, so that that flexibility uh, it it needs to be it needs to be there to allow the pastoralist to move away from the drought area to another area where there might be or, or there will be grazing um, and drought. I'm uh, oh, sorry, grazing of water. Um, there needs to be flexibility in in the administrative systems um, to allow this. Um, you know, things like uh, if, if pastoralists have to uh, register um, in, a, in, in, a, in a village or a district, you know, once a month or something, if, if they're having to move, um, they're not going to be there to, to register that month. Um, so, or, or things like education, if pastoralists want to be able to send their children to school, but if a drought happens and they've had to move, um, then the, the, the schooling system needs to be flexible enough to allow that to happen. So whether, it, whether we're talking about boarding schools or whether we're talking about a mobile education system um, that will go with the pastures when they move. Um, so yes, flexibility needs to be there um, to, to allow the movement, but also to allow 
services um, and administration and and other requirements um, to go with them. Um, optionality without those options being there, without uh, pastoralists having the option of moving to a place where there isn't drought um, will mean that they will have to stay there in the drought area and and suffer mm. and their livestock will suffer. So, yeah, flexibility right. and optionality are important. I had meant to ask you earlier, where are uh, – I have some ideas of, of where in the world there are still you know, relatively large, distinct groups of pastoralist peoples uh, places like Mongolia, parts of Africa. Are there other places that I'm not thinking of where where this kind of a large scale pastoralism uh, is, still exists or is common? Absolutely. I mean, on every continent apart from Antarctica. Um, yeah, whether we're talking about the Sami. Uh, with their reindeer in in Greenland, uh, through to um, the 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 movement of um, uh, the big transhumans um, across the West Africa, um, countries like Niger, um, from north to south, um, and then right the way across to the the southern ports in West Africa. Um, or we're talking about in Europe. Um, I mean, here in Italy, uh, there are still recognized transhumans routes um, that people move their livestock along from from like the lowland areas up to the up to the upper pastures in the mountains uh, during the summer. So, yeah, pastoralists um, are found all over the world. Um, the The degree to which they move uh, depends on the environment um, and also on uh, uh, potential uh, blockages to that movement. Um, so, for example, in East Africa, um, a lot of the pastoralists uh, don't move as much as they did in the past um, and rather moving with their whole household, with the whole families, they might have more of a satellite approach where they, they have a base and a permanent settlement. Um, and then part of the family will move from that base to grazing areas further away at certain times of the year but the base and like young livestock with um, certain members of the family will stay at the base so so yes nope pastoralists pastoralists are all over the world and um, and for sure that's that's not appreciated um, and I think particularly here in Europe and I think over the last the last few years um, that really, has been appreciated more. Um, pastoralist organisations have, have got more mobilised. Um, there's been a real swell of, um, of uh, individuals, uh, very committed individuals and organisations coming together um, to raise the profile of, of pastoralism, pastoralists and rangelands. Um, we've seen, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's a call put forward by the Mongolian government for an international year of rangelands and pastoralists, which hopefully will get approved this year at the UN General Assembly and, and should mean that 2026 will be an international year of rangelands and pastoralists. Um, and then uh, we've got other big global events happening this year, like the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration being launched uh, in June. And one of the ecosystems that is being targeted, that is being given specific attention, are grasslands, shrublands, and savannas as one ecosystem. Um, so that will also demand attention from governments and from other stakeholders to really start investing in the restoration of these areas, which have been neglected in the past 
is there something that people can do to support the International Year of Rangelands? Um, you know, say a listener thinks that's interesting and, and wants to lend their support for that. Is there any way uh, to increase the likelihood of the UN passing or accepting the resolution from Mongolia to establish an IYRP uh, if people do something? Absolutely. Um, there, there are things uh, people can do. Um, first of all, there, there is a website um, which gives a lot of information um, about the international years. So that's www.iyrp.info, I-N-F-O. Um, that will that explains a lot more about the year. Um, so, and it also gives an indication about what people can do. So, people can um, contact, uh, find out about local pastoralist groups um, and networks that exist in their country, um, and support them to raise the issue with their government. Um, so, ideally. What we want to see is that um, governments, all governments, will support the 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 call. Um, the there has been a lot of support already from some specific governments, but not all governments. Um, particularly, your government um, is is quite difficult to, to persuade because um, as uh, the, the U.S., amongst others, um, dislikes the idea of international years, seeing them as as a cost um, to to the taxpayer and others. So um, there's still a bit of persuasion um, to be done to convince governments to support the year. Um, the other thing that can be done is for organisations uh, to provide support letters. Um, support letters for the year, which can be sent to the, there are addresses sent to the Mongolian government and sent to to FAO that are, are basically facilitating this process. Um, and yeah, um, I, I think it's really, it's really through the, through organizations um, working on these issues, um, contacting those organizations um, if, if they don't know about the year, raising awareness about that, um, but getting those letters of support, of support in um, to, uh, to support the year. There's more information on the website, um, so I would, I would direct your, les- your listeners there. Good. We'll post the website on the show notes for the podcast episode and also put a few instructions there. I think we'll also come back and do uh, an interview with a few other people that's dedicated to the International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralis, and I th- that will provide more information, and maybe we can discuss a little bit more at that time how people can support it. Uh, I just had a couple of questions for you in, in closing here now that we're at time. Uh, you mentioned that you've done a fair bit of work with uh, women in pastoralism, and I'm curious, how have you been received as an English woman working in Africa to help people? Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I had a had an interesting ex- experience quite recently, actually, in, in that someone uh, flagged to me that I've taken on, the, well, or that I'm very kind of uh, a, a bit too aggressive and. Uh, in, in the way that I manage things. And I, I think it was a bit of a wake up call that, that it, I have, uh, I think I have kind of felt the need to take on kind of more, let's call them male characteristics <laughs> and ways of managing in, in what is a very male dominated environment. Um, whether we're talking about the development arena or, or within livestock science or rangeland science, um, and uh, yeah, it was interesting to have this flagged out, this flag to me, and um, it, it kind of instigated a bit of a reflection process um, on myself. And you know, I don't, I don't really like that. I, I, yeah, I'm disappointed in myself a bit that I. Have, have felt the need or, or push myself to a degree that I've taken on characteristics um, that, uh, 
I, I feel are not appropriate. So, um, but I, I think it's, it's part, yeah, part of the environment where I've been working in that um, it, is, it is a very male-dominated world, um, particularly working with governments. Um, of course, working with governments doesn't uh, require um, or, or for sure wouldn't uh, being aggressive with governments uh, doesn't doesn't work, um, but I, I think maybe in the NGO uh, development work, um, yeah, it is it is quite male dominated, and and as a woman, you do need to uh, to push to have your your views heard, and and obviously, I've I've had to push mm. them a little bit too much. Um, but I, well, I wondered too, if it was a cultural difference and not just a gender difference, because there's a lot of Eastern cultures communicate in more of a sideways manner and yeah. we tend to be more direct, whether we're male or female in, you know, in Western cultures. Sure. Yeah. Though I think probably my, yeah, my interaction yeah, I guess I have two levels of interaction. There's the interaction of, of of within my peers and with others involved in the development and and science world, um, but then there's the there's the interaction with people in country and and mm-hmm. I think with governments, um, I I think with governments. Um, I've I, I have developed managed to develop a way of being quite strategic um, and and persuasive, uh, but not not to a point of being excluded. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think I, I think working working with governments, um, for example, in Africa, I, I think governments really appreciate when you come with solutions or, or potential solutions, and you're prepared to work with them uh, to test out those solutions and, and, and to work through them and to, to share your, your technical, technical expertise, but also to draw from them. So it's like a joint, uh, problem solving together. And I've, I've really seen that effective, um, as, as a way to influence government. Um, if, if you, if you start, uh, criticizing government, um, without coming with solutions and without being prepared to work through solutions with them, um, then doors will be closed. Um, so I, I think that's been very important. Um, work, working with communities, working with pastoralists. Um, I mean, I love it. Uh, the the pastoralists in um, in Tanzania I, I, that we've worked with, they they feel like family. And uh, I was lucky to go back there in December and um, back to the project areas and and was presented with a, a young heifer, a young cow um, mm. who has been called Bella, and she's now she's she's staying there. Of course, I couldn't put her in my suitcase but she's there and it's it's uh, a very strong reason for me to keep on going back to those communities um to see how she's doing so um yeah i love that <laughs> last question related to that what in your time and working in um, different parts of the world what do you think are some lessons that that we i say we because most of the podcast listeners are in um, Western countries at this point. What do you think we in the West can learn from pastoralist cultures? What are some lessons that that you've uh, learned that you think would benefit other people? And I would add that about half of the podcast listenership is ranchers and about half are other natural resource professionals uh, like ourselves. For me, a lot of it is it's about the, the passion that – that people have um, for the passion for their culture, the passion for their identity, the passion uh, for that that closeness with livestock. Um, I, I I think that is is just so strong, and and that is you know one of the reasons why why pastoralists and and pastoralism survive today uh, because they they care so passionately about. Uh, their livelihoods about about their livestock about their culture um and you know perhaps this is something that we have lost 
um, perhaps in the West, you know, we we don't have that uh, that passion, and or, or many of us don't have that strong passion and, and innate connection with with nature, with livestock, uh, working in harmony, working in in an integrated way. Um, so, I I think for me, you know, that's 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 something that we can learn from. Um, that that you can you can be passionate, you can have passion um, about things, but you can also be successful land users. Um, it, it doesn't have to always be about money. It doesn't always have to be um, uh, about uh, success in the way that, that we measure success. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think for me, that's, that's, uh, that's really what I've, I've seen and I've learned. And I, I think that what, that's what gives me the drive to continue to support um, pastoralists and pastoralism um, in, in the work that I do. No, I think that's a great point. You know, our, our language reveals quite a bit about our values. And in the United States, some time ago, we began referring to ranchers as beef producers, you know, reducing their role in society and their occupation to just the, the sheer, you know, pragmatism or the utilitarian um, function of raising beef animals. And for most people, it's more, if it was only about making money, many people would not be doing it because it's not particularly profitable compared to some other things that one could do with a large land resource and the money that's tied up in in livestock and and for many ranchers it is a lifestyle but they've been taught that that's uh, not something that they should be proud of that they're supposed to focus on their function of raising beef and not uh, not the, the the lifestyle of raising animals and I uh, so I'm in wholehearted agreement with you that that's something that is important Great. Good. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Fiona, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been great to talk with you, and we will post some links on the show notes about the International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralists. And, um, and uh, we might do this again because I think it'd still be worthwhile to talk about uh, women in pastoralism, especially in Africa. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to talk happy to talk about pastoralism anytime you want me to. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona, and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Music